When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to the Self Love Club, the podcast chatting about stuff that matters, real talk and lols. I'm your host, podcaster Belle Crawford. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm recording a new season of episodes with some incredible guests, which will be dropping in your feed soon, plus working on another podcast under the Self Love Club media umbrella, and we'll share when it's ready. On the show, we're joined by lawyer turned entrepreneur, author and podcaster, Sarah Davidson. Behind the scenes info, this was recorded a while ago, but it's all still relevant and such a good conversation. Sarah, also known as Spoonful of Sarah, was a lawyer and started a successful business all by trying to get her much a fix after she had to quit coffee. A sliding doors moment, Sarah was offered a prestigious position and had to choose whether to take it or run with the opportunities with her business, which was first to market. Sarah really is a ray of positivity and we can all gain so much from her story and advice. We chat about self-doubt and using it to our advantage, overthinking, getting stuff done and pushing past our fear of failure and looking silly. Let's get into our conversation with Sarah. Sarah, welcome to the Self Love Club podcast. Thank you so much for your time today. So appreciate having you on from Melbourne. Thank you so much for having me. Now take us back. We're going to find out all about you. Take us back. Uh, where did you grow up and did you know growing up what you wanted to do? Oh, that's my favourite question to ask other people. I don't <laughs> know if I have a, a good enough answer for myself. <laughs> so I was actually born in South Korea in an orphanage and was adopted by an Australian family when I was six months old. So already from the beginning, have a bit of an interesting story that's very much based around the idea of sliding doors moments and that but for small things that happen in your life, your whole pathway can be completely changed. I think that that heritage firstly gave me an opportunity to grow up in Australia, which is the best country in the world. And my family, I haven't known any other family. So our adoption has not been in any way traumatic or, or difficult. We have an incredible bond with our parents. We have nothing to compare it to. I had the most beautiful, supported, warm upbringing between the city where we lived in Melbourne, but both sides of my family were from rural Victoria. So we spent a lot of time on dairy farms and in the countryside and kind of had a really balanced upbringing, um, exploring all sides of ourselves. Um, but one thing I think that my my adoption or knowing about how different things could have been, I think one of the things that left me with was a very, very keen appreciation for every opportunity that came our way, which is of course a good thing, but it also made it very difficult to ever know what I wanted to do because I wanted to do everything. I wanted to do every sport at school, but I also wanted to do all the nerdy subjects, but I also wanted to dance and do the arts. And I had this like thirst to just try every activity. And even if I was bad at it, I was like, no, well, at least I know I'll try something else. And I kind of bounced from one extracurricular activity to another, which having so much choice 
choice and so such broad interests meant that I can't say there's been many times in my life where I've I've known exactly where I wanted to end up. So when I was in primary school, I wanted to be a ballerina. That was my first great love. Like all little girls, I yeah. started doing ballet when I was young, but like an A-type, I took it very seriously from the beginning. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to make this my career and I'm going to be a performer. Yeah, I'm going to be in the Royal Ballet. <laughs> like, that's me. Yeah. I did. I actually got through to the Australian Ballet. Wow. I stayed until it was time and I think my parents probably got an idea very early on that I don't really take anything lightly like I'll make everything a professional career and like I need to do everything to the best of my ability and that was my first concept of a career choice of growing up to be a ballerina and training to get to each level and seeing a progression of a pathway and um, that kind of rigorous training schedule was very formative for all of primary school and half of high school just growing into the next level, learning to self-manage, learning to time manage between school and ballet and learning to set goals from very young, like know what parts I wanted to play at the end of the year or which exams I wanted to see it. And I think that set me up with a, a lot more discipline than I might have otherwise had. As a, you know, as a kid, you don't really think about jobs. You're kind of much less filtered you're like what do I like what do I not like I'll do what yeah. I like and I won't do what I don't like and you think about your point, dreams as well you're like I want to you know you think big when you're a kid don't you you really you dream you like everyone's like I want to be a, like a you know like an astronaut. actress or an astronaut yeah like all the amazing <laughs> things you know it's so great yeah. like I knew I wanted to be a ballerina but I didn't really think about that as an actual livelihood until the middle of high school when I reached that point where you actually have to choose whether to give up school for ballet or to give up ballet full-time at least and and do school it was the first time I understood the idea of like mutually exclusive pathways because until then I've just done or I've, I've always chosen both but my mom was like this is a fork in the road this is where you need to see that by choosing ballet you will sacrifice a lot of other things and without you know she's always been very good at explaining that it's good to have a backup plan it's good to prepare yourself for opening as many doors as possible rather than closing them and ballet was just you've got one career. Mm. If you get injured, if anything happens, there's sort of no sideways movement. So yeah. she convinced me to finish school. She's like, just give me two years, just finish high school. Then you'll always have that and you can, you can do whatever you want. And of course, by the time I had two years of realizing I'd been missing out on boys and parties <laughs> and eating yummy food like, and just chilling out and having a really good time. And also letting the nerdy side of my brain as well, have a bit of time to be focused on academic things, to study languages, to explore a side of myself I hadn't give, given a lot of time. By two years later, I realized actually ballet is probably not going to be, you know, I would have a hard, long, hard talk to myself. I'm not going to be a prima ballerina. You kind of know what your prospects are. And I had much better, a much better chance to to build a good life through um, through settling down and using a more academic side of my brain. So I had a very narrow concept of the categories that exist. Um, and it all came back again to what's going to keep the most doors open while I decide or while I figure out mm. what I want to do. I ended up getting a good enough score to get into law and choosing law simply because I knew that lawyers could become politicians or diplomats and it would allow sideways movement into lots of other things. Um, I studied arts law at uni to keep both the arty fighty and burger sides alive got to the end of the degree, still didn't know what I wanted to do. So kept going on that corporate pathway. And I don't even think now it's ever hit me since then that I've gone, I want to be X. Mm. Just kind of rolled with the punches as, they, as they've come and learned to appreciate that at different chapters, most of us do want different things. Very few of us wake up one day at five and know what we want to do and then go on and do that and keep wanting to do that. Mm. 
Talk us through, you went and studied law and then you actually did become a lawyer. So talk us through that and how long were you doing that for? Yeah, so I, it was one of those careers where even from uni, you have to have your mind so many years ahead of you because to get into a really good firm, you have to have done a clerkship and to get a clerkship, you have to have done a work experience and everything is sort of, it starts to ramp up in about second year. I knew that I enjoyed the intellectual challenge of it. And again, no other jobs kind of hit me as an idea until I graduated. So I ended up getting into a a really wonderful international um, top tier firm. And I spent three years there soaking up the experience, absolutely learning everything I possibly could. I worked in all different areas. I had a really good three years. I really made it my mission because I knew that I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was like, well, you're going to be here anyway. No matter what happens, the time will pass. So you might as well learn as much as you can for whatever the next chapter looks like, which I'm now very grateful for because I did try to be involved in everything. I tried to apply to work overseas. I sat down and had coffees with every partner. And But one of the things I look back on and that kind of give me, still gives me goosebumps now to reflect on is that a lot of people move on from corporate because they don't like it because it makes them unhappy, because the hours are very strenuous or because it doesn't fulfill them or whatever, for whatever reason. I never got to that stage that other people thought was really worthy. And if you say you're a lawyer, you know, most people go, oh, well, she's successful. Like yeah, she's doing she's very smart, you know, like, yeah. What a great yeah, profession. There's a lot of, yeah, yeah. yeah, there's so much prestige. No one's ever going to think that you're not making the most of life. If you say I'm a lawyer, they're going to be like, oh, she's really making the most of you know, her <laughs> education. But the fact that I thought that that was it scares me. Because I've now realized unless you're actively unhappy, most people don't change. If you're really, really, there's some kind of discomfort, you're really unhappy, you're burnt out. If something is really inconveniencing you, you have a motivation to step out of the comfort zone and change your life. If you're just okay, you're in the comfort zone. You can be motivated. Habit will take you for years and years before you notice that anything, you know, that there's anything to compare it to. And I just thought that being successful was the same as being happy. I thought having stability and certainty and a wage was happiness. I didn't know that there was any different form of stimulation that you could have. I was just like, my life kind of looks like suits, like a little bit. That's probably (laughs) enough for me. (laughs) And it wasn't until a very happy accident exposed me to a business idea, which we then jumped on and that went well and happened to go well enough to allow me to leave that job. Without that, I never would have known how much better it could be. I would have just sat there, I think for decades, I could have been distracted by that busy and productive and climbing this corporate ladder. I have absolutely no regret. People often ask, you know, you studied for seven years and then you walked away. And I'm like, but I didn't walk away. I built on that chapter. Mm. That set me up for everything that I've had since then. I truly think no experience is a waste because it either gives you skills for whatever comes next, or if the only thing you learn from it is that it's something that you don't like, that's really valuable information. Mm. It's just as useful to find out what you don't like or what you're not good at as it is to find out what you do like and what you are good at. Mm. People only lament a loss of time or a waste of time if your mindset allows you to do that. Whereas if you try and find a lesson in everything or a growth opportunity in everything, then that's what it becomes. Mm. So you actually turned down quite a big promotion, didn't you? And when you were leaving to go to become an entrepreneur. So talk us through that time. Yeah. So I'd actually forgotten about that. (laughs) It was an interesting it's, it's sort of a, a very specific legal uh, legal community thing that often people in their third or fourth year of law, that they, they either take a year off and go and do their master's and they'll study overseas, or you can apply for this position called an associateship where 
you sit with a judge and you can apply to all the different courts up the hierarchy. So the highest court is the high court, then there's the federal court, then the Supreme Courts, and it kind of goes down that way. But every judge has an associate who sits with them for a year and you help them write their decisions and their judgments. You do research, something, anything from heavy legal work to picking out their kids. Like it can be anything, but it's one of the most coveted positions because firstly, there aren't many, but also because you get to see the inner workings of the law that law is made by judges and you get to see how the courts work and be sort of in amongst it. And so it's very prestigious. And in the case of the high court, you actually have to apply four years in advance. That's kind of how intense it is to get the positions and have you locked in and all that kind of stuff. So I'd applied at uni and I didn't know that I got the position until the year that we started the business. So something happened, the judge called and said, look, next year we've got an opening. We would love to have you. She has now become the chief justice of the high court. So the highest judge in the country and is the judge that I admire the most. She's one of the first female judges, like just an absolute baller in the industry. I could have learned so much from her and to to sit alongside her for a whole year and soak up her wisdom was like the dream job for a young aspiring female lawyer. But the date that I would have started was the same sort of six month period where Matcha had gone from just this random hobby idea on the side to something that was actually starting to get traction internationally, that was starting to make a lot of money and that was starting to bring us opportunities that were beyond like literally beyond my wildest dreams that I didn't, I didn't even hope for them because I didn't know that they were possible. Now, looking back, an easy decision at the time, the hardest thing I've ever had to decide. I'm always that person. And this is to my detriment. I often burn out because of it, where if I can say yes to both things, I'll say yes to both things and I'll just figure it out later. I won't sleep to fit in both, but I'll, I'll fit in both things. But suddenly it was, you are either going to take this next step, which will set you up as a lawyer forever, or you're going to say no, but totally cut off that opportunity. You can never come back to that. But equally, you can never come back to having a business where you're first to market. You'll never have that position again either. The world maybe won't be as open to you having a business. Right now, it's an entrepreneur's world. Maybe we won't be as flexible in five, 10 years. You know, who knows what's going to happen? Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing with being an entrepreneur. These things happen. You don't know what's going to happen. You have an idea, you create you create this thing for yourself and then yeah, you've got to roll with it, don't you? And so talk us through how, I know there's quite an interesting story about how your uh, match you made and all started. So tell us about that and then take us on that journey. Yeah. So, the journey like I again. mentioned, <laughs> and you've probably, you know, realized by now I'm not very good at slowing down or taking things easy. <laughs> so I was going really hard, working really long hours, drinking a lot of coffee, eating at my desk, like doing all the non-wellness things that now I know is not very good for you. But at the time I was like, like, yeah, I'm like eating my broccoli in between. So I'm fine doing a spin class at 5am. Like I'm ticking all the boxes. I got the wonderful opportunity to spend some time in a school in Rwanda of all places, because my husband has a creative agency and he had sponsored a, a big campaign that su- supported a school there. So we got to go and spend some time at the school. Two big things happened on that trip. The first was that it was my first exposure to the idea that success and happiness are different. I really did conflate them and just think they were the same thing until then because I was feeling both as the same thing. What I expected was to go over as a lawyer who was very privileged working in a high rise and feel so grateful for everything we had and see how poor these small rural communities were and what they didn't have. What I saw instead was happier children and happier people than I had seen anywhere in Melbourne. They were so unburdened. Obviously, they have incredible hardship, but they also could play with a leaf for 12 hours and smile brighter 
than, you know, any child at home on their PlayStation. So I started to really think like, how are they so happy with so little? And how are we so stressed with so much? The next thing that I, that I brought home was a gut parasite, which wreaked so much havoc on my body and my digestion, but me being totally disconnected with wellness, had absolutely no idea what was happening. Went straight back to work the next day, progressively lost 15 kilos without noticing and collapsed uh, on the floor at work. My body was just like, you're not listening to anything I'm saying. Uh, You've got full-blown adrenal fatigue and I'm going to make you work to actually recover your energy again. And in that process, I got banned from coffee, which I was kind of mainlining like five cups a day, 10 cups a day (laughs) to get through. Literally didn't know what to do without it. I was like, how am I going to do my job? Mm. There's no option. (laughs) But I got sent to the firm's headquarters in Hong Kong where matcha green tea powder is not the buzzword that it was in the West. It's been around for centuries in Asia and pretty Pretty much everywhere you get a coffee, you can get a matcha latte or a matcha green tea. So I was finding a way to get caffeine. It has half the amount of caffeine as coffee, but it has a, a unique amino acid in it called L-theanine, which slow releases it over three or four hours. So instead of like a spike of energy and a crash, you get a more even keel of energy um, across a longer period of time. So my body could handle it. It was this miracle superfood. It also had 137 times the antioxidants of regular green tea and was so good for immunity and hair and nails and everything. And uh, when I came home to Australia about eight months later, we couldn't find it anywhere. It was just people knew what it was. The Kardashians were drinking it by then, but there was no brand Mm. you could buy it it was like sugar it was just this generic kind of product but no one had made it cool and no one had made it affordable either it was like really expensive people were drinking spirulina and it tastes like foot and I'm like why is no one drinking like clearly we're okay with green powders Mm. why is no one drinking matcha so the whole business idea came about purely to satisfy our own selfish needs for a powder that was affordable so we ordered we did a lot of googling we found a tea farm online you could only get 10 kilos as a minimum it turned up it was enormous way too much powder like a million serves or something we decided to try and recoup some of the money just by selling some and i literally mean selling to like two people was the goal like and also we were like it'll be fun you know we'll we'll knock up a a website obviously nick has a creative agency so he could do that i'll do the instagram because i already was taking photos of my food like you know a good asian as we all do and um, (laughs) i could put it on my linkedin that i was an entrepreneur tick the box go back to work done uh and it turned out lots of people knew what it was. They'd seen it overseas. They'd seen it in Japan or in Asia, or they'd seen it in the States where it was becoming really cool. Even in the States, people were drinking it, but there was no brand. So we started to gain traction from our online store in America, from Victoria's Secret Angels posting about it. Wow. And it just exploded. It was the perfect combination of timing, the market being ready, but no one else having filled that gap. I think we did a really good job with branding and community building, but I also think if we'd done that at any other time in history, it wouldn't have gone the way it did. How do you know how to do it? Because like obviously you just knew and you worked it all out along the way, but you know, you like you say, you bought these big bags in bulk for yourselves and you're like, oh yeah, we might sell them to sell it to a few people to help fund this like new habit now that we've ditched the, uh, the coffee. <laughs> you know, so like how do you go from that Well, this is my favorite thing to talk about because I think people skate over it a lot, especially once now when you see the business, it's like a proper business with like a, you know, ABN and like it's got a structure and stuff. I think everyone overcomplicates it so much Mm. and we, we get so intimidated by what a business actually is, but you can really get by with like everything DIY. 
everything you can Google. You can actually, you know how you said you obviously knew how to do it. I had no idea how Mm. to do it. I still don't know what I'm doing. There's actually no formula. The only common thing we all share is that we all Googled something at some point. Like there's no official smart way to build a business. In fact, the smartest way maybe is to do it the DIY way so that you can take steps to figure things out and Mm. grow into things as a business owner. Because Nick had run businesses before, but all service-based. I knew absolutely nothing about business. Like I didn't know anything about the world, let alone business. I was, you know, sheltered little girl from uni who'd been a ballerina like had absolutely no clue I traveled widely but I didn't know about shares and the market I didn't do commerce so I had absolutely no idea what was going on but alarmingly all you need to know how to do is how to find other stuff out and Google is the answer to Mm. all of that you can find resources for everything for setting up your ABN like literally type in what do I need to start a business and there's information there yeah The other thing is that for the first like six to 12 months of the business, what other people saw was like a proper business. So they'd be so impressed. They'd be like, you've got an actual thing. Like you made a thing. How did you do that? We were still flailing about in the background, like packing ourselves in our undies. And like, we didn't have proper boxes. We were like (laughs) buying them from like, office works but wholesale version like the reject shop or whatever like we had no idea we didn't think it was legit yeah it's just they can look proper before they actually are so everyone else thinks you've got it made but that's why I'm like make it till you make it is a great way to start Mm. like actually don't wait until you figured it all out don't wait until you know what you're Mm. doing don't wait until you've done a degree and overly qualified like you can do it with so much less everyone does and most people for the first few years actually feel like a fraud and actually don't understand why people think they have a real business like we had business cards they made me laugh I was like I don't have a business what do you mean the minute you sell to a person you have a business because I didn't take it too seriously because I had a job this was just a little fluffy thing on the side I think that worked in our favor because all we wanted to do was sell one bag one or two bags. And now when I approach things, I try and do that on purpose. I try and take that approach of Mm. how do I sell one thing? And with the podcast, how do I make one episode? Because if you can make one episode, you can probably make 10. If you've got the equipment for one, you can probably make a hundred. I think if you think about the hundred, you'll get too scared off because it's so overwhelming. And it's like, how will I ever get there? If you just think about one, it's not that hard. Just make a list. There's no more than five to 10 things usually. And you can only do one at a time. Mm. So why are you getting your head so far down the three-year mark of how am I going to scale up to sell overseas? Like no one's going to know who you are on the first day. You'll have time to work that out. We obviously needed to meet certain health and safety standards. I was a lawyer, so I I was very paranoid about insurance and all those, you know, having the right labeling. But even that is something that you can either spend eight months trying to agonizingly get everything right, or you can just do it really quickly. Like you don't need to overthink everything. It's clear, like you can research and find now resources on what you need on label tick them all off and then just once you've done it just get it out there like don't double check Mm. I mean double check but don't like for example with designs we were never going to think that our logo was 100% perfect and the more you look at it the more you hate it with with things that you create and I could have if I was left to my own devices because I was such a perfectionist Mm. and I hadn't unlearned everything that I now have I would have never launched it because it would never have been right. I would have kept changing and then I would have changed it back and I would have changed the font and then changed the color and size. And, you know, you don't need all that. If you've got the bare minimum legal requirements and you've got something that you can launch, 
absolutely just go for it. You will figure it all out. What you think is perfect anyway might not be what your audience thinks is perfect. Mm. Give yourself a chance to get some feedback. Just put it out there. Of course, especially if you're in food or in the medical industry or something, there are like some things that I would say done is better than perfect, but sometimes perfect is what you actually need to attain. But in most cases, most areas of your business, it's like your paper boxes now won't be the ones, your shippers won't be the same ones you have in 10 years, but that's fine. Just get what you need now and then work it out. Yeah, that's such good advice. I needed to hear that myself as well. It's like you can get, (laughs) and I'm a bit of, I'm a perfectionist like you. I can relate on so many of those things and being A-type. Yeah, and you waste so much energy and time on things that ultimately aren't going to matter or that you're going to change very quickly anyway. And of course, like it's easy for me to say now, at the time I agonized a lot about everything. Like I wasn't just like, oh, that needs to be the perfect. Yeah. Like let's just get this done. But it's because I've been through it and because I spent so long sitting on things that I later realized we changed very quickly or someone told us it wasn't the right thing. You know, everything is going to change. Everything will be constantly tweaked and improved. And that's the point. You're not meant to launch with your forever product. Mm. It's meant to be an evolving process. Still to come, Sarah's take on self-doubt and how we can use it in our favor and how to push past our fear of failure and looking silly. But first, we're an independent podcast and the best way to support us is by subscribing on your favorite podcast app. We're on all of them. Hit follow on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave us a five-star rating and if you're enjoying listening, writing us a kind review. Follow us at Self Love Pub Podcast on Instagram. I'm at Belle Crawford and Belle underscore Crawford on TikTok. Show us where you're listening, tag us on your Instagram stories and send the link to your friends. All of our details are in the show notes. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Let's get back to the rest of our conversation with Sarah. So you launched like your product and then it went across everywhere. You had the award-winning, well, you had the award-winning matcha milk bar. So talk us through that process of scaling up from like you say, making this product at home in your undies or whatever, to doing all that. Like, take us through that. Well, it was, again, a very, very similar process with a similar mindset of, I think because we started it as something on the side, we both had our full-time jobs. We did allow ourselves really to grow into it. And while in an ideal world, we would have started with our own factory and we would have started with, you know, economies of scale and cheaper pricing per unit, it actually is was better to allow ourselves to do everything like clumsily and then slowly, slowly as we got bigger and as the need arose, we refined everything as it became necessary. And I, I think you you think that you need more than you do at the beginning and you don't. And it, it, we've made a couple of mistakes uh, a few times of like we bought, for example, we found these boxes that our whisks fitted into and they were like, we, we used to pay a dollar for them or something like that. I can't even remember what the figures were up were, but say we paid a dollar for them. And then we found these ones that were 10 cents and we're like, oh my God, this is going to change our cost of goods and our profit margins and everything. But you had to buy like 30,000. So we bought the 30,000 and then they were the wrong size and we ended up using none of them. So it wasn't actually cheaper than the $1 ones that we knew were right. And I think sometimes you try and scale too fast because you want to get to the end and you're like, oh, eventually we're going to be this big. And scaling up is called scaling up because you do it 
in stages. And that's exactly what you're meant to do. And skipping past all those stages is not going to allow you to grow into it. So we were very incremental. And as the demand grew, so we started off, for example, with a WooCommerce site that didn't, we couldn't handle too many transactions, but we didn't have too many. Then when the time came and it started to get buggy, we upgraded to Shopify. Same with our packing. We had the capacity to pack it ourselves at the beginning and we didn't know what who packers were or where they got mm. done. Or where do you, it's like, where do you how, find these people? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we just did it for as yeah. long as we could. The day that I left my job was the day that we got a contract with Urban Outfitters in the US. That's it so was amazing. Cool. That's the best. Like, I love Urban Outfitters. That's so, that's so massive. It was such a pinch me moment. But again, they thought we were a proper business. We were still packing in our undies. And that at that time, six months in, I was still working full time and I was still packing ourselves. So we didn't rush to like outsource everything and just spend a lot of money. We waited with a lot of things till the very last minute until it was necessary to change. And so I packed that order. I went full-time so that we could say yes to that order and I packed it um, as a full-time worker. Very quickly, as that kind of scaled up our demand, our um, uh, ordering cycle took like by tenfold, we realized even if I did that full-time, I couldn't do anything else. I couldn't do any marketing. I couldn't do any customer service. The only logical thing to do now is to start outsourcing the things that anyone can do and me to do only things that the things that I can do. So we started looking for packers. Again, it was Google. I had joined quite a few business groups and asked people with similar products. Where do you get your bags packed? Mm. Who makes your bags? People are incredibly generous, particularly mm. if they're a few years ahead of you and in, in a slightly different industry. Um, the next thing was shipping and postage. So we'd get everything packed, but then we'd still do the postage. That became too difficult. So we outsourced that. For the whole time that we've had the business, we've done all the marketing and social media in-house, but that's because that's the part I enjoy. Joy. And we've also changed when things haven't worked. We scaled up from like literally printing stickers and sticking them on a bag. As we our volumes got bigger and we could afford it, we printed custom bags. And then the first round of those weren't waterproof enough. So we swapped supplies and got a new one. And then when those weren't printing fast enough, we got a new one. Like And talk us through the matcha milk bar as well. Whenever I've been in, I actually have been there when I've been in Melbourne. It was beautiful. Yeah. No so way. good. Yeah, yeah. A long time ago. Now another example of I think showing myself as well that I had unlearnt all the ways of thinking that had served me really well as a lawyer, but realized how much they held me back in business and that we need to wear different hats in different chapters of our lives. So whereas when I was a lawyer, my job was to identify risk. My job was to make sure I thought of everything that could go wrong and avoid it. In business, that you would never get anywhere if you were risk averse like that. And it took a really long time to kind of get my brain away from the need to have a business plan, a five, 10 year plan with all the scenarios, a risk analysis for everything. So we had this idea when we were traveling for Matcha Maiden, we were in the States looking at the way it was developing in the American market, which is always a good indicator of what's going to happen in Australia. And our now business partner, uh, who I actually did law with was over there because he owns cafes and he was looking at the food trends. So we ended up doing this little cafe hop and he was looking at food. We were looking at drinks and we realized that there were some really big trends coming out that Australia was kind of onto, but no one was really tying them together the way the US was. And a big gap was there aren't many plant-based eateries or matcha drinkeries. And yet those are the two biggest trends that were coming out of the States. And the thing that unites them that we had, um, we ended up researching and coming across this big body of study is the blue zones, the five areas of the world where people live dramatically longer than anywhere else. And there's been so many studies on why they live literally into their hundreds in tiny geographical areas where people outside of those areas don't have that longevity. And a couple of the common factors are 
there's you know sense of community the way people treat the elderly in those communities but a majority plant-based diet is one of them and in Okinawa where uh, they there's the most 100 year olds in the world they also drink matcha so we thought longevity cafe people have made vegan cafes they've made matcha cafes but the vegan cafes are often really targeted towards people who already eat that way they're a bit intimidating if you don't so we're like what if we made it all about living longer and then it appeals to the same thing that the beauty industry and the wellness industry mm. appeals to just good rainbow instagrammable food so we got it together in like a month or maybe less we painted it ourselves we got in there we all painted nick did the plumbing like we designed everything ourselves we got the website ready we launched very very quickly and it just again exploded because we were we were sort of like well let's just do it and see what happens let's not invest you know millions and millions of dollars to make it a forever venue let's just see how it goes let's knock it up with the bare minimum i love that some really key you know like the vegan egg and the blue latte and just see what happens and it went well so we're like Let's just keep it. Yeah. <laughs> How do you do it all, Sarah? Honestly, like, you know, you've, you're an entrepreneur. You do your podcast as like your side hustle, but we all know as podcasters, it's not a side hustle. It's a lot of work. You're an influencer. You've written a book as well. How do you do it all? I just don't, <laughs> like, how do you juggle so much? Oh, that's so lovely of you. I love that you assume that I can. Honestly, uh, whenever people ask, like, what's your biggest failure or your biggest setback, uh, of course, we have had lots of mess ups in the business where we've like the over ordering or under ordering or we've you know spent too much here or we've not done our taxes whatever there's been lots of screw ups along the way but my biggest one is self-management because I don't really like to accept that I have limits I clearly like to have a lot of balls in the air and throw myself at them 110% all the time and I do thrive off things that are really output driven and people based and that do involve a lot of energy And it took me a lot of years to understand that you can have too much of a good thing. Mm. You can burn yourself out from a job you don't like, or you can burn yourself out from negative things. And of course, the first step for every human is to learn to say no to the things you don't want to do, which alarmingly is still a bit hard for a lot of us to use the word no. Mm. It took me a long time to learn to say no to things I didn't actually want to do, which should be the easiest things to say. Yeah, no, same. I understand. Yeah. What the next challenge has been is saying no to things I do want to do, but that just don't fit anywhere. And I think because I haven't really learned that lesson yet, I know it's a lesson and I know it's something I need to work on. I have continued to burn out, which is the most embarrassing failure to me because I preach this stuff. I run a wellness business and all I talk about is joy and prioritizing yourself. But I am just so not good at accepting that for myself and knowing what my, my own limits are. So it's a work in progress. I do have a slightly higher threshold than some people for doing a lot of stuff and I thrive off that Mm. but then there's a very fine line between thrive and then just like oops I overdid it I used to think that I was just on this burnout cycle where that's just how I was going to operate I was just going to go really full pelt at things and then burn out and then spend a little bit of time to recover and then I was like surely this is not the way it's not fun I just it's not fun and it takes the enjoyment out of the things that you do like which is then sort of like well what's the point of this and I really had to have like a long hard talk to myself about what is this about like why do you have all the knowledge and you still end up doing this you're so good at managing everything else that's going on in your life and you're very self-aware so what where's the gap like you're a relatively smart person like what is not getting in 
now the burnouts are much less intense and much further apart, which is a good sign. But all it really is paying very, very close attention. And and this is part of the whole idea of CZA, that what is your yay, like your yay filled life for work, for rest, for nutrition, for exercise is going to look nothing like anyone else's. You're going to draw lots of inspiration from other people's diets and anecdotal experience and scientific research. But the only thing you can really make your decisions based on is what your body tells you when you try stuff. And I think where the the like missing link in the loop was, was that I knew all this stuff, but then I would go, oh, well, she's like had adrenal fatigue, but she's doing this and she only gets this amount of hours of sleep per night. So I would do it and not pay attention when my body was like, it's not enough, dude. You're going to have to make room for nine hours of sleep a night or whatever it is. Mm. And the, the more that I just kind of block out as much as I can of what other people thrive on and just pay very, very close attention to what works for me, things go pear-shaped when I start to look outward again and I start to like keep up with others or make my week look like someone else's week does. As soon as I come back to the things I know work and stay away from the things I know don't work, then I, I can I can find that that right balance and feel my best self. But it's it's very hard. I mean, we live in a very noisy world where even, I mean, obviously we all get bogged down in comparison sometimes, but even short of comparison without even realizing sometimes you're just emulating other people's behaviors because you think that's what wellness looks like. Constantly I say this stuff and then like tomorrow I'll be like, damn it. <laughs> why do I feel like this? Like I've done it again. But yeah. I think being gentle on yourself as well while you figure it out. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, yeah. Is also really important. Talk us through your book. It's one of those activities that I think there's a quote about it that all writers, they don't enjoy writing, they enjoy having written. So it's like really painful while you're doing it yeah. and really stressful and you're trying to get it all right and you're trying to articulate exactly what you yeah. mean. And these are your big life beliefs. Like, and every life experience you've ever had, and you're trying to communicate it to any potential reader who's got any background or no background or lots of background and make it interesting to all of them. So as a perfectionist, it was a very hard process to say exactly what I wanted and and get it in all the right amount of words and have the right balance between funny and serious and, and all that kind of stuff. But once you've done it, it is the most rewarding experience ever to have on paper a record of everything you think and feel at a certain time in your life in the hope that maybe one or two other people might have an aha moment. I learned all the lessons again in writing them at a time when I needed them most. So my first chapter is about self-doubt. As I was writing it, I was sitting there with imposter syndrome thinking, yeah. why do I have a book? Why do they give me a publishing deal? This is so stupid. Like no one's ever going to read it. Blah, blah, blah. So as I was writing, I was reaffirming those lessons for myself and actually needed to remember that I had that all in my brain. Then the next chapter was comparison. So of course, I'm like writing and looking at every other author in the world and going, <laughs> oh, she's done this. and oh. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of people can like learn from you and what you write and what you put out there in your work. But like, what are some of the ways you've overcome self-doubt? We are so nasty to ourselves. It's actually unbelievable. It's interesting the way we word it because so often, even I talk about overcoming self-doubt, but my biggest strategy actually, and, and the most kind of breakthrough that, breakthroughs that I've ever had in that imposter syndrome area has been switching from what I used to be, which was just waiting for it to go away. I thought that one day I would get to a stage where I was experienced enough and I'd been successful enough or hit certain boxes to become like successful that I'd wake up and not have it. It doesn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't go away. Like what I've learned is not to wait for it to disappear because those inner voices are always going to be there. What I've learned to do instead is acknowledge it, 
but not let it consume you. Like hear those like negative inner, inner critic thoughts and instead of believing them, just acknowledge them. It's like, actually the self-doubt is a healthy sign. It means that you're not complacent. It means that you're never just going to think you're the shit and not care about doing a good job. The fact that you're doubting yourself a little bit, not to an unhealthy level, but the fact that you've got a little bit of doubt is proof that you're stepping out of the comfort zone. And if I did one day wake up and think, I'm good, I got this, I'd be worried I wasn't growing anymore. It's a self-protection mechanism that proves to you that you're stepping out of what's familiar, that you're stepping out of what you've already mastered and what you're already good at. I now kind of like it to pop up I don't want to listen to it necessarily or, or change my decisions or behavior, but I like it popping up to just go, okay, you're a little nervous, but that's because you care about doing a good job today. You don't have to listen to it. It's going to make you worry whether you're worthy or not, but you wouldn't be here if you weren't worthy. They wouldn't have asked you to come here, you know, just push it aside, kind of observe your emotions. You don't have to believe everything you think. If you see it as a reflex, just like when you knock your elbow and your sort of whole arm moves, like it's normal. It's just, mm. it's just a reflex and just let it pass. And don't like, I think if you kind of see it as having a wall up around it, so it can just bounce in and bounce off rather than wash over you and make you think that you're unworthy and ruin the whole thing. Mm. And the other way to kind of bounce it off is that a lot of the time in those moments, if the voices are really loud, and particularly if it's your first time doing something where you don't necessarily have as much rationality to say, I'm actually going to be okay, I've done this before, you can phone a friend, you don't have to do it alone. And if you ask, you know, that quote, you're some of the five people you spend the most time with, if the five people around you echo the doubt and say, actually, you should, you know, you're probably not experienced enough. Like you, if they're negative, you're going to believe it. And you're going to walk off that stage or walk out of that situation and walk away from the boardroom, whatever it is. If the five people around you are like, you are amazing. You have got this. You've done this before. We've heard you speak. We love you. Like whatever it is, you're going to believe that. So choose the people who are going to pump you up when you can't do it for yourself And you will always feel better when you talk to one of those people. Just a couple of things to chat about before we wrap up. What is uh, some of your go-to self-care practices? We've talked about, you know, some of these Mm. things and you know that you're like, like all of us, like I love that you're honest about it. Not everyone's perfect with it. It's not like we all wake up and go to yoga at 5 a.m. every day, you know? So what are are some of your, like definitely, like sometimes I do, but what are some of your go-to self-care practices then? Oh, yes. So this is another one of my favorite questions because for so long I didn't have an answer. Like I didn't actually know what helped me. But again, I think you're where our own research projects and all you need to do is just start getting the jigsaw pieces of the puzzle together to figure out what works for you and what doesn't. I know I am a nicer person who can achieve so much more if I get massages. I used to think they were the most indulgent thing, like what a waste of money and how like only special occasion and people who get massages all the time, like, oh my God, you must be so wealthy. Like, <laughs> Now I would rather spend that money on that than on anything else Yeah, because nothing else snaps me out it's of therapy, like, isn't it? Yeah. It actually is. And it scientifically uh, calms your heart rate. The long, slow movements mm. actually like bring you into a different state of consciousness. And I can't do that myself. I can't get to that stage by myself in the middle of a hectic week. But if I do book in a massage, that will like, I kind of think it as like a circuit breaker. Like we're on this crazy energetic loop and you have to find ways to get off it. And whatever it is for different people, you know, for some people it's gym. Gym actually just hypes me up more. I love it, but it's not, it doesn't help me relax or unwind. I get more like 
more intense and energetic and like excited. So massage is something I try and do like at least once a month helps me like even from an anxiety perspective, helps me manage anxiety because that's the one thing that brings me down from that like crazy level. Baths, I love baths, same thing. It's like something about the complete change Mm. of state that my brain knows I'm not working anymore. I'm going to read a book in here. And the other thing is, I always say you need things that make you forget what time it is. When I'm reading a crime book or watching a crime show or listening to a crime podcast, it's so far away from my life experience and it's so anti-yay on its face for me to be like, I like serial killers, but I love it. Sister, I am with you. I love all the crime stuff. Just, I don't know, I, I always have. Like, my sister's like, it's so weird. You've always loved that stuff. And I'm like, it's so interesting. Like, it's so much better it's than... So, it's so weird because, like, we're really happy, bubbly people. Yeah. And then it's like, what do you like for fun? I'm like, well, murder, obviously. I've watched all the true crime docos. Like, I've listened to all, you know, like, yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. What is some advice? I think you might ask this question as well. Uh, but uh, what is some advice that you would give to your younger self, knowing what you know now? I think this is a really interesting one because... I wish I could say so many things to my younger self, but I also have come so much to embrace that everything that I've done since then has taught me those things. So I would almost go back and say nothing. I would say everything that you've done and every time you've been ignorant, the next step has fixed that ignorance for you in a way that helps you for the the stage after that. Mm. And we're all in a rush to grow up so fast and to know everything and to have everything sorted. And I kind of like that when I was a kid, I was a bit, I went through a super reckless phase and I went through a really insecure phase and I had pimples and I had braces and then I had party time. Like I like that all those phases were as kind of unstructured and not as wise as I, as I might have accumulated some wisdom now. I like that I didn't know about self-doubt and I like that I wasn't as conscious of self-awareness and stuff then because I was a kid, like I was being silly. I am so glad, particularly because I'm such a nana now, I'm so glad I had like a crazy irresponsible party phase that I didn't know better during because I now it's out of my system. I mean, the only thing I would say is not to rush it. Just trust that each stage that you're in is there for a reason they're not all going to last forever. So just enjoy it, but just be okay with where you are when you're there and don't try and have it all figured out because you're not supposed to. I still don't now, but I'm I'm more okay with that now than I was once. How do you deal with those times where you get a bit frustrated, especially as an A-type, like, you know, when you're ready for the next level and stuff, do you ever have those times or have you in the past where you get a bit frustrated? How do you work through that? Yeah, um, I definitely have. The the moments of frustration that hit me the most looking back are the moments where I do have all these ideas and I do have all these plans or things I want to do, but it's my energy that means that I can't. Like I'm already stretched and I'm like, oh, this is just not going to fit in, but I'm like, yeah. who do I delegate this <laughs> to? I want this. 10 of me. Yeah. But yeah, also when it's a direction thing and you're sort of like, I've got all this motivation, but where do I go next? Like, what am I doing? And I found that actually just before the podcast, I was like, okay, I've, I've left law and I've done business and it's going really well, but you know, what's next? What is the next level? Is it going to supermarkets? Is it become more multinational? Is it like corporatize? Is it like, what is it? Is it start something new? The frustration is good because that's what makes you agitate for the next chapter. That's the feeling of being like, ugh, I'm coming to it. The next one, like something is not serving me anymore or I'm evolving or the role has changed. As our business got bigger, I got further and further away from the customer. And I realized that's the bit I love. So I don't want to just keep growing to get further away from that. I need something to bring me back to the people. So I think actually the frustration is 
good because it's what makes you like realize there's a gap and then try and fill it in the next phase. So finding out that I missed, I didn't like being in a high-vis vest in a factory all day, every day. And not that you have to like every part of your job, of course, you know, it's a, it's work. We've got bills to pay. But I did think it was possible to do something that had more of a connection with humans and more of a, a link in with the behind the scenes stuff than the really polished stuff. Cause I resonated so much more with like having a breakdown every day than I did with it looking really together on the outside. But that's how I came up with the podcast idea. The frustration turned into action because it's frustration that kind of gives you the kick up the bum to actually do something. Mm. Um, so I would say like, sit with it, sit with that feeling and try and figure out what it's trying to tell you. Do a lot of writing stuff down, mm. right? down the moments that you're annoyed and why and what you're annoyed about and then you can start to get a picture of like consistently I realized it was because I was not seeing anyone but that process took a year but it was started from the frustration so I think channel those feelings into something because it's usually trying to tell you something. You've given us so much advice to end on what is some advice you would like to share among all the other gems you've given us uh, to those listening who, (laughs) who want to like do really cool things and live their best life like you are. Oh gosh. Okay. Biggest one probably right now uh, for this year in particular is beautiful new beginnings are often disguised as painful endings. So if you're having a shit time and COVID has taken things away from you and you're grieving and you've suffered loss, even if it's just loss of expectation, we've all kind of experienced it in different ways. Trust that it's making space for something else and something better. And there's always going to be a silver lining if you look hard enough. So don't lament the loss because it could bring something much, much better your way. The other thing is I think we're all a lot more scared of looking like a failure than we are of failing. If you knew that you could fail quietly, <laughs> I don't think we'd care. I think it's that we have to fail publicly and then because we're like, Ugh. We announce everything. It's like we stitch ourselves up, you know. It's like, so I've started this business and it's like, or like, you know, I, I'm with this <laughs> Actually, guy. Actually, I take it back. Yeah, yeah, I'm with this guy now and then all of a sudden he's not there anymore and he runs like, where's he gone? You're like, never mind. Like, yeah. <laughs> but I think... If you know that, if you're aware that you're actually just scared of looking stupid and it's not the actual failure that's the worst thing, that makes it a lot easier to do stuff. Because I think like when you actually think most situations through to their worst case scenario, it's not that bad. What's scary is when you don't let yourself think about it at all. And then the fear like just multiplies and multiplies and festers in your head. And then you get so overwhelmed that you're like, I'm not going to start that business. Like that's definitely going to fail. But when you actually let yourself think about the scary bit and you realize, okay, I might lose a bit of money. I might look silly on Instagram and have to retract my announcement post one time. Like, And they might spend like a minute being like, oh, she pulled that thing down. And then five seconds later, they've forgotten about it. So you're the only one thinking about it. No one else really cares. So I feel like if you really remember that and let yourself be like worst case scenario confronted not that bad worst thing failure who cares then you're sort of like okay there's no more obstacles like I've kind of addressed them all so like I can just do it now Mm. and that's really liberating because otherwise if you let yourself sit on them for too long it stops you doing anything so I feel like just get over looking silly who cares I love that's why I do those funny blooper things because I'm like well I've already like I've already fucked it I already look gross and everyone's seen the worst so now everything is a bonus so it's like kind of really free you've seen my like triple chin front camera selfie accidental mode so like now everything else looks great yeah oh I love it hey thank you so much for your time Sarah I have loved this chat so much and we can all get so much from what you have um, given us so thank you so much for your time 
Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. That's all we've got time for. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Self Love Club. You can watch videos of our conversation at Self Love Club Podcast on Instagram. Follow us to keep up with our content and also hit follow on your podcast app. We'll be back in your feed next Monday. I'll catch you then. See ya. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.